This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.ourcontext.org. What does it mean to be an Indian national living in the U.S. and in Europe? In this episode, Peru shares his stories of growing up in Mumbai and his experiences of studying in the U.S. in a predominantly white town, as well as the struggle to find jobs abroad. If you listened to Kusiwa's episode last week, you will recognize the city in Europe Peru refers to, Geneva. I intentionally put these two stories back to back so you can see how different forms of othering manifest themselves within the same locality. That being said, let's begin. I'm Fumi, this is Hashagar Racism, and this is the story of Peru. Peru was born in Chennai in the south of India. He then moved to Mumbai with his family where he would spend the first 17 years of his life. Peru says that Tamil people from Chennai have darker skin than people from Mumbai. For this reason, he remembers being bullied as a child. From Chennai, we tend to be uh, darker skinned, usually uh, Tamil people. And I remember in school, actually, there were already kids that used to bully based on that, right? And everyone is brown, which is the funniest thing in this whole thing. But um, just because I was darker, I remember uh, my, my granddad had given me a golden watch one year as a, as a gift. And I was so excited to wear that. And I remember like they used to call me uh, black man, golden watch. I mean, like these just horrible names or, or just, um, you know, very overt racism for sure. I mean, if you were to go into caste and larger colorism in India, that's a whole area in and of itself that is due attention. But at least in my life, I can say that's with my own skin color in school with other brown kids. I had already experienced early on, you know, that there is a difference between those two. You know, and even the usage of kind of offensive words on, you know, whether it's you or I've even seen other kids who are darker skin and what they were called. A lot of it was in jest. A lot of it wasn't. But, you know, you look back on that now, once we grow up and we learn more and you're like, wow, a lot of that was super offside for a kid to hear that. And then it's no surprise that in the country, you still have a very budding uh, fairness cream industry. It's one of the few countries that really pushed this. I remember as a kid, how many ads we'd see this is an Indian comedian that does a great job of explaining what a classic uh, fairness cream ad was. But it was basically this woman who is like very dark skin and then she's not getting any jobs. And then she puts this fresh fairness cream on. And then before you know, by the end of the day, she's like CEO of the, you know, of the company. So that's very much this idea that people are fed uh, at a very early day in India. So for sure, I think uh, racism and specifically colorism is a big issue in the country. I mean, one that really is due attention. And I know I think there's effort being made to work on that, but I think a lot needs to be done and it needs to be done at a grassroots level. It needs to be done by parents. It needs to, you know, it's very much across all social classes too, which I found interesting, you know, right from the most elite to to not, you'll see this colorism ever present. So I guess that's why that South and North thing was quite interesting because I know for sure, you know, a lot of people from the South who end up being darker skinned, Uh, experience a healthy dose of racism in India. I guess healthy dose is a bad word, unhealthy dose of racism. After completing high school in Mumbai, Puru moved to the U.S. to pursue his bachelor's. So I went to rural 
upstate New York to a beautiful college called Hamilton College. So it's in a town called Clinton, New York, about four and a half hours north of New York City and about maybe an hour away from Syracuse. And um, that was kind of the first big jump I made to go internationally. And uh, I was very lucky to go and do my bachelor's there, but it was also this huge culture shock to move to not just the US, which, you know, is a culture shock enough, but to move to this really remote, small, very white, actually, college. There was not much diversity by ways of a big mix of international students and things like that. So it was pretty much, you know, a small American liberal arts college. Guru says his time at college was one of the most memorable experiences of his life, where he not only obtained a great education, but also made friends for a lifetime. However, he does recall situations in which he was othered, both on and off campus. My college was on the hill and you come down and that's where you have an ATM. And I'll never forget this one time I was at the ATM to withdraw money. And I don't know if you're familiar with upstate New York, but essentially after November, you can't really see the grass. So it's just freezing cold. We're talking negative 20, negative 30 degrees. So I'm fully layered up. I have a hood, blah, blah, blah. So it was kind of this ATM where in the night it closes and it's just a drive through ATM, but that's the only ATM I could go to at the time. So there was a car at the ATM. I'm kind of standing and looking at the car and just waiting. So I'm waiting. My hands are in my pockets because it's freezing cold. And I'm just waiting to use the ATM. And uh, I'll never forget. So this lady rolls down her window and she's in the car with her husband. And this is the funny sequence of events too because she calls me over to her. So I go over and she's just like, so what are you doing? I'm like, I'm waiting to use the ATM. To which she just goes, Oh, thank God. I thought you you were going to pull a gun on me. And I was like, what? I was like so thrown off by where that came from. And the husband is kind of laughing as well. And she's like, oh, thank God. And I was like, this is stupid on so many levels. Because first of all, you think that I'm a threat to you. And your choice of action is to roll down your window and call me to your car. Like, you're probably not going to be safe if this was to ever happen. But second of all, like, what are you even talking about? Like, I'm waiting to use the ATM. But, you know, And at the time, I didn't even just chalk it off to anything specific or anything malicious, but just with how casual it was for her and her husband to just kind of laugh and be like, oh, my God, like, we totally got it wrong. And you're just like, what are you guys on about? You know, and then you wonder that they could see my face, right? They could see who I was. And I wonder, always wonder if that made, you know, a difference. Because the town was one of these towns that experienced essentially a lot of white flights. So there used to be these big industrial towns and then a lot of people, a lot of the prosperity left these towns. And as a result, a lot of the areas became actually these refugee safe havens. It's quite beautiful. And, you know, like if you still go to Utica, there's a large immigrant community that came in, a large refugee community that came in. And um, I don't know, perhaps because this is like a college that is extremely wealthy, you know, there was always a bit of this divide between the, the college and the town. But I don't know what it would often chalk up to, but you definitely feel out of place. So there's many times I really felt out of place on, you know, on that campus and in that town. Another crazy story, and this one is particularly shocking, was I was in, um, this was a year when, I don't know if you remember, but in America, there was a, there was an Indian who won Miss America. I forget her name. It was Nina something, or I forget her last name, but there was this whole discourse and there was obviously, you know, a natural amount of backlash that, okay, you know, this is Miss America and, you know, uh, also a lot of overtly racist people questioning why this could happen. A lot of toxic dialogue. But I remember, and and this is a, a friend that told me because I walked by when this happened, 
So we have this bridge that connected two parts of the campus. And I was walking to a class and I had a friend who was walking behind me and there was two girls. I presume that they were American, but two white girls who were walking by me. And, you know, you kind of, the bridge is the connector on the campus. So you pass a lot of people all the time. So I walked past and I didn't really hear anything, but they were kind of talking. And my friend was behind me. She apparently picked up on what they said when I walked by and she kind of ran over to me and she's like, Poo, you're not going to believe what those girls said. So I was like, oh, wait, what did they say? And they said, with people like this on campus, it feels like 9-11 all over again. And these are like two highly educated people by probability, probably also very wealthy people that are at one of the wealthiest colleges in the U.S., you presume with a very good education. And for them to even think this is, is crazy, right? But it was just like, you could see this fear already building up or very present, you know, at this, the upper echelons. It was kind of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of racism, right? Where you don't really see it. You know that people are talking about it more often than not behind closed doors or in their groups. So, I mean, when I heard that, I was just really shocked because again, it's always this interesting thing, right? Because first of all, I mean, it, 9-11 was not done by Indians, which is always, which is even more hilarious. But uh, yeah, just to even think something like that is, is so sad. And I really just feel sad for people like that to have that going through their heads. But then you really then wonder, wait, how many people on campus are, are thinking things like this? You know, so I guess those are two of the stories that jump out. But, you know, there's always there's the glances, there's the question that often others indians and it really pisses indians off but you get it all the time is how how come i speak english and i guess for that one for me it's like it's not really a malicious question but again it just displays just a lack of knowledge you know to not know that it was once you know this <laughs> british colony and that still a lot of the schools are are english is shocking to me so you know you always get asked this question oh but like you know you don't speak it like the accent and then you know making fun of the Simpsons accent and saying, you know, oh, no, no, like, it's just a joke. And I'd say on the scale of things, that's not really severe, but it definitely, you know, it's compounding, right? I think for me, that's the thing about racism. There's the acute cases of it, but it also compounds over time. There's these things where you see happening over and over again. There's the, oh, no, I don't really mean that. Oh, I don't mean it in a racist sense. Hey, like, you know, let's just play devil's advocate. I think things like these when they keep adding up and you look at it, you're like, okay, there seems to be something at play. For a long time, Puru did not naturally associate his experiences with racism. But this changed when he met Indian Americans. I think I began to internalize it when I would have conversations with Indian Americans. I think for me, that was a very interesting time for me because initially I too was quite dismissive of a lot of the things they were talking about. And naturally, if you think about it, I, I mean, I've never actually been a minority in my life, right? I've been an absolute majority. 80% of the country uh, is kind of like me. And uh, I think that very much formed my opinion as a kid. And then when you come abroad and you meet Indians that actually had to grow up as minorities, they have a lot of stories, which some of it I can't even relate to, you know, like I've always spoken the language. For me, even viewing things like cultural appropriation, I would always disagree. And I still disagree on a lot of that. Uh, with them on, on what actually counts under that. Because for me, it's a point of pride if more people are wearing Indian clothes and are, you know, practicing things like yoga as long as, you know, respects are paid correctly. But 
talking to them, I started to realize like, hey, look, I have to be way more sympathetic because I've actually never been a minority in my own country, right? In my formative years, whereas they have, you know, they, I know kids who were like laughed about for smelling like curry. And, and that's such a sad thing because it's such a beautifully evolved, incredible cuisine that now, and now see, I can see the anger because now it's in vogue, right? So you go to Starbucks, you have your, you know, whatever golden milk, turmeric latte, and, you know, 18,000 yoga courses that you can find. But when they were kids, they were kind of laughed for that or mocked for that. Like kids would not eat their food or learn their language because they were embarrassed about it. And I think that's so sad because it's such a beautifully rich culture. And, and where I was lucky to be the majority is that I got to enjoy that culture, right? So I think that's when I started to internalize that, hey, there's a difference here. But in the grand scheme of things, if there's someone who's racist, they're looking at us the same, right? So, okay, so even I can be subject to the, this kind of dialogue and these kind of attacks and statements, because in the end, if all they're seeing is color, all they're seeing is color. And um, I think that's really sad. I think that's really sad. So that kind of kickstarted. I think I have a long way to go in truly understanding it. Uh, I think there's a lot of people talking on it. It's quite exhausting at times as well to go through that on your own, right? To every day wake up and have to think about it. It takes a bit of a toll when you realize, oh my God, like what were some of the things that were said to me in college? And then you go back and like, oh wait, that person was actually saying some pretty horrible stuff, you know? And, and to like think back on that, I think sometimes it's just, you have to be in the right headspace to go down that rabbit hole. A recurring issue Puru faces is not related to his race or religion, but his passport. He shares one incidence from the U.S. I was applying for jobs in finance, and I thought I wanted to do private wealth management. And I remember I'd applied to a bunch of different banks, and I'd heard back from J.P. Morgan. And uh, I remember I went through all the rounds of interviews, and they invited me for the last round, which is the Super Day. Uh, which is what they call, which is their like intensive round of interviews where you do the whole day. And I remember, so I'll never forget this day, you know, I'm on the train going to New York City and I get a call and they say, hey, look, I forget what it was like. Hi, this is Katie from HR. Someone in HR made a mistake, but actually this department is not sponsoring visas this year. Now, the funny thing is that is literally the first question when you fill out the online form to apply for a job at this company. So They've seen it in their HR system that I am an international student looking for a visa sponsorship. And I've gone through the whole interview process. I've done really well. I've made, managed to make it through. And these are generally quite competitive. And I'm headed to New York. And then I get a call saying, hey, so I hope it's not inconvenience, but we're going to have to cancel your last interview. And uh, yeah, that's it. So then I was, you know, there was this whole wake up moment. So, okay, what do I do? Because I put all my eggs into this basket. And uh, one thing led to another. I had a brother who was working for a tech company in California, and uh, I had done an internship at a tech company in D.C. So through them, I made a connection and I ended up moving to California. So that kind of started the professional journey totally on a different tangent. And, you know, who knows where I would have ended up had I actually gotten that position. These experiences are not confined to the U.S. Different country, same story in the middle of a pandemic. After obtaining his master's degree in Geneva, Prue's permit B was about to expire, so he applied for a permit L. So my permit B expired in September, and as per Swiss law, what they do is they allow you to get what's called a permit L, which is an, which is an additional extension for six months to find work. So on the permit, it says, you know, looking for a job. And how I got that L permit is crazy, because 
because I was in lockdown, I let go of my apartment in Switzerland. So I didn't have that residence anymore. And thanks to two incredible friends in my life, I was able to stay in Switzerland in their extra room. So I'm there, but I'm not able to find a job. So I'm like, the clock is ticking. My permit B is expiring. But to get this permit L, I need to have a resident address. So I'm actually at one point, I posted in a group saying, hey, is anyone willing to just list me on their resident address just so I can receive this permit? And then, you know, that's where this idea of, for me, like fate comes in. Another person in my life who I have not seen in 12 years happens to see a photo of my graduation posted by a friend on Facebook and says, hey, I'm in Geneva. Can you help me around and show me around? I said, okay. And I meet up with this person. And then this is like as kind as a person can be. And I felt more comfortable because that's the thing. I like Because that they were Indian, like they didn't even think twice about saying yes. They immediately said, of course. It's a sublet. Like they were subletting, but they said, I will talk to the landlord and ask them if they can list you as well on the sublet just so that you can put that on the form C, which is what you need to prove a change in address in Switzerland. I mean, this person came, I have not met them in 12 years, no contact. And uh, that's kind of the beautiful thing in, in life, you know? So I managed to, and even then, luckily I had registered on La Poste, so I would know when the delivery was going to be. So I waited outside because then her name is actually not on the mailbox and nor is mine. And Post is known to not deliver it if the names aren't there. So I waited uh, from about 7 a.m. till I think the mail came in around 11, just on her steps. Uh, and the mailman comes in and he's kind of looking. He can't see the name. And I'm like, hey, it's me. And I show him my, you know, my ID. And he's like, oh, okay. And he hands it to me. And then like getting that permit felt, I have not felt that feeling in so long. You just feel relieved. You just want to go to sleep. Like it's like the stress that you didn't even know you had. Is finally being lifted. So I get this L permit, but then I still don't have a job. But what that L permit got me was time. So a lot of times that's just what immigrants want. We just wish we had a bit more time to make choices. And I was lucky that I got this time. Puru had applied to 150 odd places for work. Finally, after numerous rejections, he hears back from a startup company in Germany and goes there, which was only possible due to his Swiss permit. His plans, however, would change last minute. So I managed to move to Germany in October, uh, sorry, November 1st. And I was there for this gig. And the only reason I could be there was because of this permit I got from Switzerland. But I would still need to apply for a permit in Germany. And before you know it, and this is again, why life for me has just been one crazy journey. I hear back from this position in Geneva after four months of not hearing back. And they say, hey, look, are you still willing to talk? And uh, I do an interview with them. And then I had to make a choice because this, what I'm doing now is more in my field uh, or in my, the field I wanted to be in or give a shot. So I decided to end my time in Germany. But I heard back from this place in Geneva about three days before I was scheduled for my application for my German permit in which I give up uh, the Swiss permit. And before you know it, I was back in, in Geneva in December. And then, you know, I've been here ever since. And uh, that's kind of been the crazy journey. But you never know, you know, how people come into your life. And I love the word. I've I always used it in, in college and in, uh, in my job. I had another big mentor in my life who was the CEO of the company that I worked at for the three and a half years in the U.S. And, you know, he, he loved this idea of hustle. And like, I think immigrants have to hustle 
just that much more. We're willing to take these risks. I'm willing to put my name on a stranger's sublet just so it means that I can get this visa, you know, and uh, with no guarantee that I can stay or no guarantee that it could work or it could backfire and I get into some legal trouble. God forbid, I don't know. But we're willing to take those chances because uh, it could lead to a life that we've envisioned for ourselves. And I think that's what, to me, very much defines this immigrant experience. There's immigrant experiences that I can't even begin to relate to, ones that are far more painful, ones that are far more tragic. But I think what's a constant feature is uh, an immense amount of stress and an immense amount of, I just wish I had more time. And I think, uh, you know, if you get those two away, uh, it's suddenly a different world that you're looking at. Peru is currently working for an international organization. But as with many contracts in such organizations, his contract is just six months long. This means he has to hustle, quote unquote, for the next job which would grant him a permit. The permit at uh, international organizations is the CDL for six months, which means at the end of it, you have an extension of just two weeks and then you need to leave the country. And, and I don't have like a permit to go back to. So at this stage, if I don't have anything, uh, maybe it's just fate taking me back home and, and I just do that, you know. So, but it's annoying to think that I have to get back on that grind. But the thing is, like, you're already thinking about this, you know, in month two of your gig right now, because you're like, okay, if I need to have something by July, I should probably, given my experience, already start applying in March or earlier. And that's already like one month into the job, right? So are you really able to put in your 100%? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Puba recently wrote a blog article where he shares about his struggles with work permits and visas as an immigrant. He says more attention needs to be put on this issue. I've always been a bit surprised by the lack of knowledge that people had about global immigration system. So that's why I wrote that article. And I had a lot of wonderful support from my friends who read it and came back and they're like, hey, we're sorry that we didn't even think about this. And they're like, initially, our knee-jerk reaction was to get angry that I'm accusing them. And I was like, look, that's never the case. It's never the individual. It's always the, it's a systemic issue. And if you guys don't educate yourselves now and you are going to be the ones making the laws in the next 10, 15 years, we don't want that to then be the same system later because we're seeing firsthand the importance that immigrants can have to a community. But I guess I would just always be asked questions from my friends. Like, hey, like, why can't you just do that? Or why can't you just do that? Or what does it mean to apply for a visa? What does it mean to do this? What does it mean to do that? I was like, do you guys really just assume that you can go wherever you want or most places that you want? And then you realize that, wait, they can, <laughs> you know, so it's a total different ballgame. Like they're looking at a different world in terms of opportunity. And uh, what does that mean for everyone else? So I think that's something that's always interesting to think about. Or even for me, I find it always a good practice every day to look back and just be thankful for what I have. So for me, there's so many things. I mean, I can't even list on if I had to list, I'd be going on for two hours or more on what I'm thankful for with my, my family and the various other, if you're, you know, in, in the article, I, I talk about the idea of like these lottery tickets that we win at birth. So I've won a lot of lottery tickets at birth, right? So to be thankful that you won those, I think is an important exercise that any, every one of us can do day in, day out. So it also makes us go and give back to community uh, as best as we can. So I think that that immigration discourse is one that really needs more attention because most of the stress, I think a lot of immigrants face it's just constant. You're never making, like my mom would always tell me, she's like, look, Puru, always make decisions 
from a position of strength. Never make decisions out of fear. And I, and I love that. For me, that's one of my guiding quotes in my life from my mom. But sometimes you realize when you're an immigrant in these situations, a lot of time you're forced to make these decisions that you just have to, right? And it's not always fair. But then you're kind of hit with the life's not fair, which is fair enough. But you realize that you're not actually getting to make the decisions that you want. You just have to make the decision based on what you have. And it's not necessarily a position of strength, right? And I think that's something that was uh, kind of hard for me to, to realize. And I've seen it with my brother firsthand. I mean, he started a company in college and he's been running that ever since. And for the poor guy to just be here with that company, thriving, contributing to a country and to year after year go through an immigration marathon just to stay, just to stay and keep helping and hiring. It's crazy, you know, and, and we I remember we had a conversation once and it's been a long time since then where we said, look, if we have to do one more immigration document let's just go back home. You know, like at what point is it, let's go back to a place that will, you know, where we can actually just apply for a job and never have to think about any other metric. Right? I wonder what that feels like. So, and again, like I even said in the article, this is an example of a lottery ticket that I've, a good lottery ticket that I won. The fact that I can even be here and apply for jobs. here, A lot of people don't even have this opportunity. So I think everything needs to be tempered with a, what are we talking about? But I think these, inequities in the system exist nevertheless and, and it's important that we spend time understanding them we ruminate on them and see what can be done if anything to move forward against the background of his experiences puru reflects on how he sees racism to me racism is something that i've experienced in different ways and it's always hard to put a finger on what it is but those that have experienced it uh, know what it feels like you know it's it's a real horrible feeling where you where you're made to wonder why you are how you are and and I think that's like a not something that someone should have to think about you know they should be able to love who they are. Puru has the following to say about what he thinks it takes to be anti-racist. I think you have to start off admitting that you might not even begin to understand someone else's story and that their experience is something that's very real to them and sure you know people can say oh that's anecdotal but there's there's enough you know stories around there that it really makes you wonder that there's something really wrong right there's something afoot and it's sinister it's horrific it's traumatizing for a lot of people so i think to start off and understand that look something is wrong i think Admitting that there is something wrong is, is probably the first step to even successfully being anti-racist. I think second of all is practice. And that practice, you know, can take, manifest in many different ways, but definitely beyond social media, right? So if it means donating more to causes that are fighting racism, or even as simple for me, just looking at your group of friends, right? And holding them accountable. And I've always thought about this, you know, how many people have looked at their group of friends and wondered, huh, I wonder why I might not even have a single friend who's a person of color. So either I'm avoiding them or they're avoiding me or both, but maybe that's can, that can change, right? I've, I've always wondered about, like, wondered if people even think that. Like, hold on, how come all of us, <laughs> you know, are exactly the same, you know, if that happens to be your group of friends and, and wonder, you know, what you can do to rectify that or maybe you're happy with that but i think it starts with a lot of like admitting that things are wrong or that you want to make a difference 
You can read Puru's blog article, as well as other articles, books, and videos he recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find a transcript of this episode on a website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi in hashtag our racism. See you in two weeks. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Nioi. Other music by Pete Morris, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to Pooh for his time and energy in going down memory lane for us, sharing with us his many struggles and valuable reflections on this issue.